I just found actually a note which my brother Alex made at the time. And one of the questions that we did ask you Sin at that time was, if we enter to politics, will it make any difference? Do the Malays really want a Malaysian Malaysian or they want it to be a Malay country? Because if it's a Malay country that they want, it's very difficult for us to enter politics. So yes, questions were already asked at the time after May 13, whether really the Malays wanted Malaysian Malaysia or they want Malay Malaysia. So it's very difficult for MCA to play a role, I think, in that kind of situation. And that's why we never joined MCA. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 49 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya. And today's guest is Datuk Thomas Lee, senior partner and founding member of Lee Hishamuring Ellen and Gladhew, one of the largest law firms in Malaysia, who also happens to be the son of Tun H.S. Lee, Malaysia's first finance minister. In this episode, Datuk Thomas shares his fascinating life journey, starting with his earliest memories of airborne sirens to fleeing to India because of the bounty that the Japanese had placed on his father's head, to what it was like studying in the UK and how his legal career began with Bannon and Bailey in the 1960s. It's a fascinating peek into what it was like working in law way before the age of smartphones and computers not long after Malaysia first became independent, as well as what some of Malaysia's most prominent historical figures and prime ministers were like in person. Now, are you ready for his story? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. You were born in 1938 in Malaya before Malaysia was even formed. What were your earliest memories from that point in time? Earliest memory would be air raids, siren, and bombs falling in Kuala Lumpur. We had shelters prepared. So I remember going up, taken by my parents into this underground shelter, and there was this air raid sirens and searchlights and bombs going off. I don't know why I have that recollection, but nothing left other than that. And then, as I understand it, my father managed to get us out at the last minute from Malaya, from Singapore, just before the Japanese invaded Kuala Lumpur and got in. That was quite important, right? Because your father was Tun H.S. Lee and he had a bounty that was placed on his head by the Japanese. Yes, that's why. But I think, I don't know why he left it so late to leave. But certainly I think that if we had not left, we'll all be killed. I think the Japanese were after my father, for sure. Because, you know, you may not know that there was a lot of money raised against the Japanese in the war by the Chinese. And my father is one of those people who helped to raise a lot of anti-Japanese money to fight them. And definitely, even his name is mentioned by Japanese historians as somebody who worked against them. You were so young at the time, but you were living in the middle of a literal war. A sirens had to flee. Did you feel any sense of fear and anxiety at the time? Or it was just something that was happening to you? No, I, I was just too young, absolutely too young and I think that, I mean, it's sad to say, most of the worries went to my parents, not by us, you know. I mean, I can imagine I was told, you know, for my mother to look after nine children running away with bombs falling and all that was, I mean, quite something for her you know, and my parents. And even when we ended up in, in India, there were quite a few other Chinese families from Malaya and from Singapore. But my father 
was very lucky in that he knew the British bankers, Standard Chartered Bank and HSBC. And so he man- managed to get some line of credit from them in India. So that's how we survived, I think. And what was it like being in India? I think you were at Mussoorie and then you moved to Dehradun, then Mumbai. Yes, remember Mussoorie, which was a hill station, cool weather, rather a bit like our Cameron Highlands. And I remember there was a time when my father used to ride horses and he had a bad fall. And I remember seeing him in hospital after the fall. I remember that. Dehradun was beneath Mussoorie. I still remember we lived in some sort of guava plantation and there was a lot of elephants. <laughs> elephants, you know, in, Among uh, the guava. in that area. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then I was a bit older when we got to Mumbai, those days called Bombay. We went to school there, and I remember we had actually quite a good time. I had a very loving Indian ama to look after us. Went to school, and my parents spared us all the worries of financial, the war, and all that. And of course, during the time, I think from what I see now, my father was constantly involved in what was going on in Malaya and working to come back. And I think there was correspondence with Tan Ching Lok and Tan Siu Sin as to what the Chinese would do in Malaya, even during the war, you know, and uh, they were already planning that. You must have had quite a lot of visitors from Malaya just, you know, coming to see your family as well when you were in India. Yes, we were very lucky. We went to a good school there and lived in a good area. And my parents, the friends, they used to play mahjong bridge and stuff like that. No? But the time passed very quickly. In 1946, we came back. And that was a time also which should have been very interesting because it was uh, a bit of chaos in the country. And I still remember we arrived in Singapore and my father had arranged a whole convoy of vehicles to take us back to Kuala Lumpur. The trip lasted the whole day from early morning to night. The car used to break down. You had to fill up the water and the car got overheated and stuff like that. But we managed to get to KL and then I went to school in Batu Road School as a, and then PI. But I think that we had just a few, one or two years life with my father where he was a bit freer. But after that, he was so busy, we hardly saw him. You know, He would go to office, we would go to school, and we would come back in the afternoon to the house. Never saw my father because quite often he'd come back for dinner. My mother, it was explained to me later, she had such a busy and worrying time in India that when she got back to Malaya, I think she was, you know, relieved and tried to enjoy herself a bit. She loved playing mahjong, right? So whenever my father never came home for dinner, she also stayed back with her friends playing mahjong. So basically, you know, life was between myself and my younger brother. Very sheltered. We didn't go out much because of kidnappings and stuff like that going on. In fact, to show you how bad it was, we lived near the Royal Slango Golf Club. Now it's called it the Golf Club. At that time, all around the golf club were rubber sticks. Now, this would only be something like two miles or three miles from my house. And some terrorists were killed <laughs> just there. So that's how close they were, actually, you know. And sometimes I think that we are actually very lucky to survive because my father never believed in bodyguards or things like that. Wow. Yeah. So the house, we only had one elderly Sikh Jaga. For some reason or other, nobody bothered us. But I always worried that people would come into the house, etc., etc. Because it was quite a tricky time, you know. 
Yeah, there was around the time when the British imposed emergency rule as well, right? Because of the communist injustice. As well, yeah. yeah. So then we then left for England in 1951 and, all, and that's it. I mean, uh, we miss all the excitement which my father went through after that. When my father said to my brother and I, look, I'm sending you to school in England. We were absolutely you know, shocked <laughs> and afraid because we are a very traditional Chinese family. We still ate with chopsticks right, at the time and uh, we never had a fork and spoon. So for us to suddenly be transported to a British environment was a real shock for us, you know. And I still remember going to school. You know, we were quite small size, of course, and the big British boys, you know, standing over us. You know, it, We were very lucky but that both my brother and I were not bullied at school. For some reason, they didn't pick on us, but there was quite a bit of bullying going on. Because in the 1951 or 52, some of the English boys who joined school were over age because of the war. You know? So they were actually much bigger than us and all that. When your father first said he was going to send you to UK, you said you were shocked. I wonder why that was the case, because you had elder siblings, right? And they also went to the UK. Your sisters went to Australia. Yes. Yes, but they were a bit older. They were a bit older when they... My two two oldest brothers went to England. My two sisters went to Australia. Do you think you were and sent it, so early because of the situation back at home and it was just for your safety? Yes, I think so. I think so. And the two elder ones went to study mining engineering and my two other sisters, one did dentistry, the other one became a doctor. Yes, yes, could be that because of the the uncertain situation, the security and all that. He sent us off early. Back then, you know, you were 14 years old. It was 1952. It's not like you can board a plane and within 14 hours, you're in London. So what was that yeah. journey for you to get from Malaya to the UK? Well, the first trip went by boat and, and it took us three weeks to get to England. We still went through the Suez Canal. Actually, it was quite interesting. You should make a trip. You know, to be the Suez Canal, you know, which is seeing the desert and the Arabs and all that. It was quite, quite interesting. But we were on a boat, which was a Dutch boat. And uh, there were a lot of Dutch people on the boat. I didn't realize it at the time. I was too young. But now, of course, I realized that the Dutch were actually leaving Indonesia. You know, Indian, Indonesia was given the independence. They're all leaving. So that was the reason why there were a lot of Dutch people on the boat. Was it just you and your brother, who I think is younger than you by a year, right? So 14 and... No, uh, my parents went with us on that boat trip. That was the first time. But after that, they just left us in the school. <laughs> and that's it. So you talked about lay school in Cambridge. Do you remember what it was like, you know, just arriving there for the first time, knowing that you were going to spend quite a few years at this completely foreign place? I remember that the first two, three weeks, I was very homesick. But after that, I got over it. But I never did enjoy school. It was too much discipline and the school bell rings, you go somewhere, school bell rings, you go somewhere. No privacy also. And I didn't enjoy it because the, the funny thing about the English is that at school, they will always call you by your surname. They will all call me Lee, never called me Tommy. And that always seemed a bit unfriendly to me when somebody called you by that. But the strange thing is this same English boys, when I met them in university, they would call me Tommy. I don't know why. Public schools have a culture. They all call smaller boys by the surname. They don't call you by the name. Were there many people from Malaya? Or was it just your brother and you? Not at the school. At the school, there were only three Malayan boys at the time. They were older than me. But, you know, we were different houses. The school had different houses. 
and you lived in your house, you know. And we never met each other and really talked because the culture again, big boys don't talk to smaller boys, and it was like that. But I did meet them when we got to Cambridge University. There was already a Malaya Singapore Students Union at that time. Then I met a lot of Malaysians and Singaporeans. When you were in the UK, was it hard to stay in touch with your family back home in Malaya? Yeah. Well, we don't have emails and WhatsApp. And my father was so busy, right? We would get a letter from him once a month. And my mother, who didn't write English, you know, she didn't write at all. I mean, the other thing is, of course, the way we left for England, we had no Chinese education, so we couldn't write Chinese. My mother only wrote Chinese, so we could not communicate. I mean, there was no communication, which is another thing. I imagine that must have left an impact on you since you had left at such a young age and you were there for nine years, colour from your family, from anyone who looked like you. Looking back, how do you think it impacted you as a person? Thinking back, it must have an impact on me, right? Because I really had no parental guidance. But one thing did happen was that my father managed to arrange a holiday home for us so that when we had school holidays, we went down to this person in a town called Seaford in Sussex. And she turned out to be like a foster mother you know, to us. She's a very nice Austrian lady. And we got to know her very well. And she was a person that we could talk to. She was like my mother instead of my mother, you know. So you mentioned that you later went to Cambridge. And Lay School is actually located in Cambridge. So I imagine it must have been quite a strategic choice by your father to pick a school located in a place where he wanted you to go to university eventually. Yes, I think he chose the Lee School because of that, because he always wanted my brother and I to go to his college, which was St. John's College. At that time, I think the university still allowed children of alumni to get into the college. It was not that difficult. So long as you pass your exams and so on, you were preferred because you were a son of somebody. I think he did that. And of course, being at a school inside a university town, we got to know the town very well, even from school days, right? At what point did your father have that conversation with you saying that I want you to do law at St. John's Cambridge? Do you remember that conversation? I think from the very beginning, when I went to school, he already told me to do law. Those days were not like people who nowadays, young people are so much cleverer and know what's going on. We didn't. You know, actually, those days, if you had some money, you either become a lawyer, a doctor, engineer, right, or accountant. There was not much choice. So I think my father thought that law was something which, if you didn't like to practice law, there are many other things you could do with law. He thought that it would be good for me to do it. And because I was quite good at English and so on, I really didn't know what to do. He just guided me. So what was it like studying law at Cambridge? It was, absolutely. No, no technology. But it was a bit of an eye-opener for me, the university, because we tend to be Asians very obedient to the teacher. I found that the English boys are very independent of the teacher. You see, Cambridge is at that time, I don't always the same. We had the university lectures that you go to, and then you have your tutorials in the college by somebody else. I used to find some very bright English students not even bothering to go to lectures in the university. There was no roll call or attendance. Right? So you can actually find whole year without attending lectures. And they just go by tutorials. And they were bright enough because one thing I did realize with the English is that some of the English students, especially those who had fathers or mothers who were lawyers, tend to have an aptitude for law. 
and they could understand the logic or the thinking of law, you know, much better than I could. So you also mentioned that you were very sporty while you were in Cambridge. You were doing badminton. I think you were also doing tennis as well, weren't you? Yes, I played both badminton and tennis. I managed to play a lot of badminton when I was in the university. And of course, the team was composed mostly by Malaysians. We had a very good team, actually. I was captain of my college in tennis. I was in the university badminton team for three, four years. And that was very good because I think that for any young person, I've always advised the best way of getting to know people is play sport. When you play sport, you get to know people. So while you were at Cambridge, you were also during the summer working as well. And you were a tourist guide at Costa Brava, Spain. How did that happen? What was it like? Well, this is what I mean by one of the good things was I learned to be independent. I don't imagine somebody in my situation doing that, but we're left alone. You know, some friend said to me, I've got a job as a guide in Costa Brava. Why don't you come with me and let's see whether you can get a job there? So I followed him and managed to get a job as a guide, basically because you know I could speak English and I was guiding English tourists and some German tourists as well to came across the border. I had to learn some sort of Spanish to do my job, but it was interesting to do that. And then another holiday, I was working in Cambridge in a brewery. And that was another experience working in a brewery because you know I was working with the labourer class in England. And actually, I found that they were very nice people to work with. They actually helped me to carry stuff and all that, you know, because I was small. So they were carried for me. You, know. you can understand that as a working class which thinks differently because they would look at us as students, the elite in Cambridge, whereas they are the working class. But it was a good experience. And during that time, you were also going to London as well to have your bar dinners. Yes, I shortcut everything by eating my dinners. You know, you had to eat, din- I think, what, 12 dinners before you could qualify. So I was already eating dinners when I was at Cambridge. So that by the time I went down to the bar to study for my bar exams, I'd already done most of my dinners. I think that time they were given an allowance as a graduate. I think when I was in London, I think I was only there for nine months or one year took my exams and passed. Then I, I did a pupillage. And I think that is a very valuable thing which I would advise anyone. I don't know whether it's easy for anybody to get a pupil master nowadays, but I was lucky to get one. And I think that's what I learned most by following the, my master around the court and working with him in chambers, see what he does, how he prepares for a case and stuff like that. So you were at two Crown Office role in the 1950s, 60s. What was yeah. your life like if you were for someone well, who's never done it? They were actually very, very kind to me, quite honestly. The head of chambers was a man called John Hobson, a very formidable looking chap. He became the attorney general of, of the country. And another person called Jeffrey Lane was a QC, and he became chief justice of the country's. They were all very nice to me, I must say. My master was a chap called Charles McCulloch. He is a Cambridge graduate. I still remember this. He always took me out for lunches and insisted on paying for the lunch. I think my father paid something like 50 pounds for the pupillage, but I got it all back for the lunches, <laughs> all the lunches he bought me. What do you feel were the biggest learnings that you had from just shadowing and working with these amazing people? The thing which you will learn is, first of all, integrity. Now, the way these chaps practice, they shared a room and they could actually be opposing each other in a court case. Now, it's unheard of, right? You can have share a room and be, you know, your papers and so on and so on. And nobody 
believes that you can be complicit with each other and doing things, right? But the bar has got that integrity that nobody would even question the system. I, I remember, for example, Jeffrey Lane had a court case against my master. So, you know, it's same chambers and nobody thought of anything about that, you know. The bar, we used to follow them and sometimes we listened to some of the top barristers conduct the cases. I still remember the leading barrister at the time was called Gerald Gardiner, who became Lord Chancellor. You know, just to listen to him, the style, the command of English, it was very educational. And it was not as though they had a lot of time to prepare as well, right? They would often get cases on the day where they have to submit. Yes, sometimes you get a court case given to you on the day itself. <laughs> so you just have a quick meeting with a solicitor uh, and then you meet your client and, and that's it. And that's the reason why they can do that is because they're specialists. Like, for example, my master was a common law barrister, which means he, a lot of contract, tort, negligence. He would know all the leading cases by heart. He didn't need to take any books with him. But I think the mastery is on the facts. Because when you meet the client and you see the case, you listen to the fact, then you have to apply the law. But you still have to analyze the facts. If you don't analyze the facts, the law is useless to you. But they don't need a lot of books because they know the law. So it's just a matter of applying the facts to the law or the law to the facts. You have to really understand and be able to take in a lot of information, right? Wasn't that the story of how one of them had a motor accident and he didn't know anything about motors before then? Yeah, that's another thing. You see, they had such good minds that they could master the facts of any subject of a case. For example, if it's a medical negligence case and they would learn all about the medicine and what happened, and so on, so on. But that one that I talked about was in a motor accident where Gerald Gardner was the barrister involved, and he was explaining to the judge how a motor car works, how the engine works, and how the brakes work. And I, and I was just listening to them, and I managed to ask his clerk, I said, Mr. Gardner has been an expert on motor cars. He said, no, no, he, he only just learned about it on this case. <laughs> so you must learn and then articulate the facts. And that's where they're very good. Of course, English being the native language, they should be good at it. But it's the mastery of being able to absorb the information and articulate it. I always tell young people here, don't be shy because you're young. You should grow up quickly. Because I noticed with the English, at age of 25, 26 they are full of confidence. They can go to a board meeting, address directors with full confidence. They have developed that through, I suppose, a childhood, you know. One thing I noticed when my brother and I flew back from England for holiday, the plane was full of English boys and girls in the plane. And they were so badly behaved on the plane. They had pillow fights and all that on the plane. And the air hostess couldn't even control them. But the funny thing is these chefs are like that when they're young. They become more independent quickly. So when they're very young, they can be very independent. That's why I was telling you when the student days at Cambridge, I can actually hear a student say to the lecturer, you tell me this, but this is not what Dicey says. Dicey in his book says something else. <laughs> actually tell the lecturer that. So, I mean, they become much more independent the way, because you might say they're very naughty as a child, but that's the way the things are. So I think maybe sometimes our children are so well behaved, it's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> so while you were at Two Crown Office Row, did you always know that eventually you would be going home? Did you never have the intention of maybe I want to actually stay on and practice a bit? I think sometimes you realize in life, 
things just happen. I have never planned anything. As I told you, I didn't know anything about what's going on in this country. So when I was finishing my studies in England, I knew I had to join a law firm in Kuala Lumpur. I knew I had to do chambers in, in a law firm. And my father just arranged everything for me. And I still remember my father said, you know, I'm thinking of two law firms for you. One is Bannon Bailey and one is Sean Delamore. Both of them are quite interested to have you, but maybe uh, you should join Bannon Bailey because I know John Screen quite well. And so that's how it happened. And John Screen came to London on holiday and arranged to meet me in London. We had a chat about it, and, and then he wrote me a letter and said, yes, we will accept you as a pupil. When I got back home, I was totally ignorant of the law. I had not been taught any Malaysian law at all. So it's real shock to me, but I was so lucky that my fellow pupil was a very bright student called Chan Sek-kyung who was from Ipoh, and he was chambering, and he had graduated from Singapore with you know, he was top mark. From there, and he was so bright. He used to do work for Malau from Digest, so he knew he knew a lot about the law. And he was very helpful to me. He really taught me a lot. But as you know, he became Attorney General and Chief Justice of Singapore. I think you wanted to do an MBA at Harvard. How did that come about? Well, it was just a fancy. You know, people people thought that you know if you do an MBA in Harvard, combined with law would be good. And I think it, it would have been good. But my father, maybe running out of money to finance me, said, no, you come home. I'm not going to pay any more for your studies. So you returned in 1961. Do you feel that you were resentful having to be home? Because you had been gone for so long, you were essentially English by then. Yes, and funny thing is, it took me some time to get used to speaking Cantonese again. But it's strange because I didn't speak it for so long. But the partners at Bannon Bailey were very kind to me. And one of the good things for me was having been educated in England, I got on well with the English people. You know? I think Tommy Thomas in his latest book talks about his days in Screen and Company. He talks about how good the partners were. And I can echo his words. I mean, John Screen was a wonderful man. He served the Bar Council for many, many years, but he never took on the chairmanship because he said, this is for, for local people. I shouldn't do it. But he served a lot. Peter Mooney was another person who served a lot on the Bar Council. Stanley Petty, very good barrister and solicitor. But the, the main thing about them was that they actually wanted to Malaysianize the firm. They were not holding on to things. They, they knew that they had to go retire and they just wanted to bring in local people. So actually, my brother and I you know, were brought into the firm quite early. When the firm of Bannon Bailey broke up and the new firm of Screen & Company was formed, I think it was only about two, three years later, I was, I was made a partner of Screen & Company. So they were really very good at promoting local people. You must have also been quite inspired by their work ethic as well. I believe John Screen, his wife would say, you're married to the firm. Yes, yes. His wife always used to complain to me that, you know, John Screen spent more time in the firm than to his family. Because even after he retired, he, he was still constantly in touch with, you know, with us and worrying about what, what's happening and so on. Yeah. I want to set the context because this was so long ago. In the 1960s, what was KL like then? Well, Bannon Bailey, the office was actually, at that time, we called it Mountbatten Road. It was the bridge and the office. That was very near to the courts. The courts was where the clock tower is, the Padang. And the lower courts were where Maybank headquarters is now. That was called Court Hill. 
So we were actually quite well placed because we could actually walk to the high court or to low courts. But it was small then because I think that maybe a few hundred lawyers only at a time. There were still some British lawyers around. You know, of course, Bandit Bailey, Screen and Company, Sean Delamore, Lovelace and Hastings. They still had, before they phased out, the chief justice was still Lord Thompson. Thompson was a, was a chief justice. He was a very, should I say, quite relaxed practice those days. You, know? you could actually take a stroll up to Court Hill, chit-chat with people, do your case, have a coffee there, <laughs> stroll back. The reason, because you didn't have faxes, you didn't have telexes, the firm had a lot of clients, which was agency houses for British companies or Australian companies. How you advise a client is two letters, correspondence. So it may take one week for the letter to go to England. They take some time to look at it. They will send you back another letter, another week. So you actually probably have three weeks to do something. So in that sense, it was quite relaxed. But of course, there were crises you know, all the time. And so when that happened, of course, things got very busy. Was there a reason why you started your career in debt collection? Those days, if you started as an assistant, they always give you debt collection to do. There was no specialization or anything. And we had to run up the courts to do mentions and et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it's basically debt collection. But from debt collection, you do learn about bankruptcy, winding up, how, how to enforce a judgment and stuff like that. And you drift from that. Then slowly, you start doing advisory work, pass your file to look at the law and give him some opinion. But it was a matter of really, those days, some people just like to be a litigator and some people didn't want to be a litigator. So you just move on that way. And I think you just learn the subject as you go along through practice. It was nothing sophisticated, specializing, go to courses. Uh, and I, I think that the people were good at lit- The reason why I ended up the way I did was I started by doing litigation, but I found that the cases always got postponed. Uh, you prepare a case and then you get postponed. I found that it's easier to do commercial work and advisory work. And he said at a time that we were very lucky because Screen and Company and Sean Delamore are the two firms that had a lot of work from international companies, the British companies, Australian or whatever. I suppose because there were British partners there. So we had a lot of that sort of work. By assisting them, I also had a lot of work with British banks, insurance companies, kin companies, and stuff like that. Yeah? From there, you just end up doing more banking work, more insurance work. You just end up that way. I mean, because in the end, you don't have enough time to do something else anyway, right? So you have to do that. So you mentioned us before that Bell & Bailey dissolved in 1963. And on 1st May, Screen & Co. came about. Do you remember much about this period, why this happened, and how you end up going with John Screen and two others to form this new firm? Well, there were four partners in Bannon Bailey, and three of them disapproved of what the fourth partner did. They were very secretive, I think, quite rightly, confidential. They didn't tell us what it was about. They explained to us that they were dissolving the firm, a partnership, and both sides, they asked me to join them. But I thought that John Screen was a lawyer that I'd like to follow around the other one. So I agreed to go with him. What was it about John Screen that made you feel like you wanted to be like him? I think his integrity, his ethics, his hardworking, always very conscientious huh? and a very nice person, actually a God-fearing type of person. I think we sort of, you had some confidence in him. He took everything seriously. They used to say that he was a great polo player and he used to take his work to the field. And in between, 
they call it chakras, right? he would do his work, always working. And the trouble with him was because he was so busy, he was actually a person who that you could, he didn't have much time for you. Now, if you know, I'll go and see him and say, hey, John, I've got a problem, can you talk about it? And he just give you a, you know, you could see that he doesn't really want to talk to you, you know, and so you, you, you get the hint and you go off. But Stanley Petty was different. He was so patient. You can sit down with him and talk to him for one hour. Your problem, he listened to you. So we had that. I think we had that great advantage that we were able to consult very senior lawyers you know, as young people. And wasn't John Screen known for saying, don't harbor a grudge, life is too short for that? He was always telling me that whenever you have grudges or quarrel with people, life is too short, forget it, get on with life. And I, I thought that a very good philosophy. And you see, after he retired, I found out that he got cancer. He was in Ireland then, and he didn't have long to live, three months. So I decided to go and see him. I, I took the trip to Ireland and see him there. And at that time, he decided not to have any chemo. He decided that whatever time he had left, he should tidy up all his affairs and do what he had to do. Because chemo tends to knock you out. You can't do much if you have chemo. So he stopped all that. He didn't do that at all. But when I met him, which is about three months before his death, he was still okay. He showed me around. We talked about the firm and so on. But he was still worrying about the firm. He was still talking to me about the firm, what should happen. That sort of man. Wow. Are there moments with John Screen that stood up for you that was very meaningful? Well, I think that's the time I spent with him before his death in Ireland. He was, of course, very sorry when I left Screen and Company. He was very sad about that, but I won't go into that, the reason why. But he was very unhappy that I, I, I was leaving Screen and Company. But I'm very sorry that for that as well, because it made him very sad. But I think Peter Mooney, who stayed back with Screen and Company, was more understanding. I think he, he, he realized what was going on. Yeah, Peter Mooney was a concert pianist as well. Yes, and Peter Mooney, of course, as you know, continued to live in Malaya, Malaysia until his death, huh? and he's still involved with the, in the law and everything. One of the brightest minds that I met, he's intellectually very sharp, and even when he was 90, still intellectually very sharp. And uh, like John Screen, very charitable. He gave his house to his manservant. Uh, he educated the two sons of, the, of his servant. One became a top, another top lawyer. Wonderful person. So Screen & Co, within two years, you were partner with Alex, your brother, and also Tun Seng Hong, who later became prime minister. Yeah. Were they also the same pupil batch as you as well? Yes. I mean, Hussein On actually had a room just next to me. <laughs> I must say, I never expected him to be prime minister. And I must say that if anybody became a prime minister because it was given to him, I think that's a case. It was actually given to him. I don't think Hussein was the person who looked for it. No, he was not ambitious that way. But I think when a nation needed him, they asked him to do it and he did it. He certainly wasn't the type of fiery politician that you see today. Nice man as well. And, and very much personal integrity. Any particularly memorable incidents? He was so cautious and he would always underline his notes. I, I still remember once there was uh, some land office matter when I thought it was in Johor. And since he was very well connected in Johor, I wanted him to speak to the district officer about the matter. And, you know, he won't do it. He won't do it. He will not use his influence. 
So that type of person, even for me, he wanted to do it. He said, no, I can't use my influence at all. My brother, Alex, was also in the firm with me. Alex was a live wire. He, you know, he was involved in all kinds of things. And eventually, he was persuaded by Tan Siusin to join MCA. And so even when he was in the firm, he was very much involved with MCA and, and politics. But a tremendous networker. A lot of people liked him. A lot of clients liked him. He would be multitasking type of person. But later on, I think he, he fell out with Susan and uh, he left with a group of young people from MCA and they joined Gerak Khan. So he didn't stay too long as a lawyer. So you mentioned Tan Susan, and this was around the time when there was the 13th May 1969 racial riot. What do you remember of it? Well, I think I, I mentioned that my little brush at politics when after May 13, got a whole lot of young English educated people to support MCA and do something for the country. And I remember that, you know, we used to meet him and he was, of course, telling us, look, you chaps, uh, you've got to do something for the country. You can't stay out of politics. But I just found actually a note which my brother Alex made at the time. And one of the questions that we did ask Susan at that time was, if we enter to politics, will it make any difference? Do the Malays really want a Malaysian Malaysia or they want it to be a Malay country? Because if it's a Malay country that they want, it's very difficult for us to enter politics. And as you know, what's happened since then, right? So yes, questions were already asked at the time after May 13th, whether really the Malays wanted a Malaysian Malaysia or they want Malay Malaysia. So it's very difficult for MCA to play a role, I think, in that kind of situation. And that's why we never joined MCA. And wasn't it quite a dangerous time as well, just in terms of what you could say, otherwise you could be charged with sedition? Oh, yes. I mean, we had to be very careful what we're saying and who's going to leak out. Because after May 13th, of course, there was the emergency and I think the special branch was all over the place. <laughs> Were you ever in fear for your life, especially since your brother had decided to enter into politics? No, not myself, because I didn't go into politics. But I think, yes, Alex would be. In politics, there are also a lot of gangsters. So there's always a danger of that. So you were at Screen and Co this whole time, and then you were also quite active outside of the law because you were in the Royal Selangor Golf Club as well. How did that come into your life? That had actually been a big part of my life. When I first came back, you know, I, I was a tennis player and joined the golf club. I was playing tennis and I did play for the country once in the Asian Games, tennis. But then later on, I switched to golf and I just fell in love with the game and got involved in the, in the club. And I became captain of the club at a very early age at 34. I was a captain of the club and I was in the committee for about 14 years in the club. But then from there, I got involved internationally with, with the International Golf Associations. Also, and then my life has been involved in Asia, Pacific, as well as Malaysian golf. So I was president of the Malaysian Golf Association for 17 years, uh, member of the committee for 30 years. And the Asia Pacific Golf, I've been there for God knows long, long time. And so that has been a wonderful part of my life in the sense of meeting a lot of nice people. And I've also traveled a lot. I'm a member of the RNA St. Andrews. I'm also a member of Pine Valley in the US. I've been to Augusta, which everybody knows about. So that part of my life, which I don't regret spending, I think. You know, in a way, I regret that I gave my time there because I didn't spend any time with the Bar Council or my legal profession. Yeah, I didn't do that. I should have, I think. 
But even so, you were still exposed and meeting very interesting people, at least through your father as well, right? You met, I believe, yeah. Tunku Abdurrahman. What was he like in person? I met Tunku when I was a young person with my father. Then later in life, when I was president of the Golf Association, I met him again because he also loved golf. And all I can say is he was a wonderful man. He was very warm, very humorous, very kind. I know some people say that he could be quite ruthless in politics, but I still think that he had a good heart. I think he did things for the right reasons. I believe that he did believe in the Malaysian Malaysia. I think he did. I think being a Malay, I mean, you can't help it, but he did try to be fair to the other races as well. He did. And I think he was, he was a bit swept away by the very pro-Malay politicians. But I think he did believe in the Malaysian Malaysia. I still remember him saying at independence that I'm the happiest prime minister in the world. And you also met Toon Dr. Ismail as well. What was he like in person? Toon Dr. Ismail, I actually played a golf match against him. It was, you it was a very, <laughs> Yes, I did. And I was uh, very afraid of that. But he was a formidable person and he tolerated no nonsense from anybody. But again, followed the law, very fair. He was tough on anybody who broke the law. But as I said, being a Malay, you have to be pro-Malay, right? So you've got to understand that. But still, I think it's a pity he died young. I think he would have played a very important part of this for this country if he'd been alive. And then 1993, that's when Lee Hishamuding was formed. How do you end up being involved in the setting up of Lee Hishamuding? No, I left Screen and Company and it so happened that some of the younger lawyers at the time decided to leave Screen and Company as well. And they asked me to join them. So I said, okay. And it's been very good for me. Usually when you do something new, there's always a lot of new energy and everything new and everybody's enthusiastic. It's nice to be involved in that sort of situation. What do you remember of those early days, the challenges and the highlights of setting up a brand new firm? Well. I still remember it happened when the computer just came in. I didn't know how to use a computer. I had to be taught how to do it. None of us had any secretaries and just a few staff. We're all partners at the time. They all had to do their own things. But a lot of enthusiasm. And I think that because the partners were good lawyers and were hardworking, they managed to make it work. I mean, for example, I don't think we had to go for overdrafts to start off. But even in screen and company, they start off with old draft, you know, when they left the company, the partners had to borrow money to start it off. But I think in Lee Shomburi, we didn't, we were fairly fluid at the time. How did you manage it then? I imagine, especially for anyone who wants to start a new law firm now, that is amazing to be able to not have to suffer with that overdraft. You also were managing to make enough money to survive almost immediately as well. That's right. I think we're lucky because I think, I must say, I think that we brought quite a few clients over with us. So I think that that helped. I think that helped. I think what also helped, you know, you know, in a downturn in the economy, you're lucky if you have litigation, good litigators, because there's always litigation in a downturn. Right? Even now you can see there's a lot of litigation going on. When the conveyancing and the commercial work drops, the litigation is what keeps you going. I think that's what happened to us in the early days. The litigators did very well. And then eventually there was a merger with Alan Gleck here in 2005. Could you share a bit about how that happened in your memories of that period? Well, I think how it happened is that some of the partners were very friendly with the partners in Lee Hewitt and Alan Gladhill. 
I think that's how it happened. I think it was these partners that wanted to expand each other's firms, and that's how it happened. But it's always not easy for two firms to merge because maybe the culture is a bit different. People see things differently, and it takes time for for it to actually merge properly. So luckily, it did work out. Yeah, although some people did leave, not everybody stayed on. But having gone through that experience, do you have any advice for people considering merging? What are the things to look out for? Well, my advice is be ready for problems. <laughs> There'll always be problems in a merger. You know, there'll be some people unhappy, some people happy. At the end, you need good leadership to put it all together. And looking back, clearly you've had such an incredible, incredible legal career. You were, as I understand it, also invited twice to join the judiciary, including the Court of Appeals. Do you regret not accepting it? Well, the first time I was asked was to be a high court judge, and at that time, it was very early days in my career. You know, I, you know, I, I didn't particularly feel that I wanted to leave the profession. But the second time, when I was actually asked to go on the court of appeal, at that time, I, I realized that I don't think the bench is the life I want. It's got its own discipline, and I'm too independent for that. I don't belong with that fraternity. Never been part of fraternity, and of course. I knew that my good friend Tun Hamid, who at that time was the Chief Justice, was due to retire, and his successor was going to be Yusuf Chin, who I didn't know at all. That was another reason why I didn't take it on. Did you ever feel pressured by your father's legacy? Because he clearly had such a huge hand in how your entire life and even career unfolded. You know, my father was a person that I respect. Greatly, because he was a man of integrity, and I don't think he ever took a bribe or anything. In fact, I remember that you know the custom of Malaysians to give gifts, presents for people. He would always tell the servants, anybody sends gifts to a house, turn them away. He'd always say that. But having said that, not easy person to get on with. He was very strong-minded and stubborn. Can be very fierce. Can be very fierce. He was the what I call the old type of father, the patriarch, strong, not emotional, keeps his distance from his children. Although he loves them, he although he loves his children, but he will never show any emotion or affection that type of person. But you know, he took us through the war, all the problems he shouldered, and I'm very grateful to him because of his name and everything. I think it made life much easier for me at the beginning of my career. Uh, he opened doors for me. People knew him, so they treated me well because of that. And it was a big advantage to have a father like him. He was a funny fellow. I mean, for example, he was a golfer. I'm a golfer, but we never played golf together. He never asked me to play golf with him. <laughs> Did you never feel like you could ask him? I mean, there were times Cameron Highlands together when I did play with him, but in Kuala Lumpur, he had his own friends. You see, he preferred to play his friends. Right? He used to go, for example, to Taiwan to play golf with his friends. But he never asked me to go with him. By the way, I must say something about my father, which might correct the impression. He was actually a very sociable person with his friends. He had a lot of parties with his friends. He gave a lot of dinners. A good drinker, enjoyed his drinks. Very sociable with his friends, and I think a lot of his friends remember him that way. Uh, that they they think he was a great person, a great friend to have. Most of them will, will remember him very well. And knowing what you know now, is there anything that you wish you could redo in your life? 
Well, it's difficult. I don't compare myself. I did mention to you some people who've done a lot for the country as lawyers, Kapal Singh or, or people like that who really stuck their necks out. I remember Raja Aziz at a time when the judges were sacked, when Saleh Abbas was sacked, told me that he refused to go before some of the judges because he just didn't want to because he felt that it was, they didn't have the integrity for him to. So he didn't go before some people. And it, it's a different type of practice in the sense that he never wanted a partnership because he told me that partners give you problems, which is true. Partners do give you problems, right? So he preferred to be a one-man show. And of course, he was a barrister. People brief him and he doesn't really need uh, a lot of people. But he preferred life that way. But the thing is, if you choose to practice that way, then of course, the practice dies with you. You know, it dies with you. You have no successor. There's nobody to buy all your firm where you die. So you must understand it. But some people choose that way but a great man of integrity. And of course, you know, Kapal Singh, I think throughout his life, fought for justice. And even though he's always at the losing end, but still, he continued to do it. Yeah, I admire people like that. I think I mentioned also Tun Sofian, I think was a man of great integrity and humility as well. So I suppose there's nothing that you actually want to redo in your own life then? No, I mean, not really. I mean, I just feel that I one thing I would like to tell people always is that now at this stage of my life, I think friends are very important. Very, friends are very important to you. And time is always passing. Don't think that you have time on your hands. Huh? Time could be very short. You never know. So enjoy yourself and really do the things that you want to do and treasure uh, all the good times you have with people and what you do together and die with a clear conscience. <laughs> well, Tommy, thank you so much for this amazing interview. I normally love to end all of them with some questions. So the first one is this. Do you feel like you have found your why? I'm still looking for the meaning of life. <laughs> and what kind of legacy would you hope to have left behind? Well, I just hope that I've been a good father and a husband to my children and my wife. And hopefully they'll think well of me. And also my partners as well. I value their opinions. I feel very much that young people do need guidance. But uh, in a way, it would be good if I could talk to people and exchange ideas and so on and so on. I'm not doing legal work much now. And so it's more the guidance and be able to engage with people and see how they're thinking and also help them with their thinking. I think that's something which is worthwhile doing. Are there particular areas of interest that you would be keen to talk with people on? No, I think what the most important thing is how you think. It's not so much a subject. It's the way you think you develop, read books read things like that and get the big picture what is the big picture out there and what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person well i suppose it depends what you mean by a successful person how would you define successful then i would say that a successful person is somebody that you respect you know that, that you look up to whatever he may not be very rich but because of his wisdom or his integrity or what he's done in life, I would say it's a successful person. A lot of very rich people I don't respect. Uh, there are a lot of Tan Sri's or Datos I don't respect. Doesn't mean a thing to me. I, you might say they're successful, but I wouldn't, not in my mind. So what do you think the important qualities of a successful person based on your definition would be? Well, I suppose a successful person might be somebody who's kind and, and actually does things for people. Because you serve people, you're not a crook. 
you're not cheating. And if you have wealth, you actually earn it. You don't cheat people for it. You're an honest person. Is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered yet? I would like to say maybe at the end of this, how sad it is for me that when I saw the country and the independence, the energy, the multiracial atmosphere and appointments, how people go on with each other, it's just sad that after 60 years or so, we're actually at a situation where people are gloomy. There was a lot of times during the 60 years where we had worry. After May 13th, there was a lot of worry. The Vietnam War, there was a lot of worry. A lot of people thought the communists would come down from Vietnam, take over this country. And then there, there have been recessions. A lot of people have migrated as well. So it's just sad that this country, which had so much promise and independence, very rich country, second riches in Asia, I think it just slipped so badly because of the politics, the way people divided. That's very sad to me. And it's also sad to me that you wonder when we will ever get better. I imagine there are a lot of young people who also feel that sadness as well and also feel powerless, thinking, who am I? What can I do? One person can't change anything. Do you have any advice for them? I think the future is with young people for sure in this country, right? It's a young people's world and I think how they will take charge. I have a lot of respect for young people. They're very bright. But I just wonder sometimes that, well, they're too spoiled to really deal with problems. But let's hope not. When I look back at my life when I was young, maybe I also didn't listen to old people much. In the club, when I was a captain at age 34, I don't know how I did it because there were a lot of much more qualified and older people, but they accepted me as captain. But I really wish that I had talked more to the older people in the club. The members were in the 60 years old, 50, 70. I really wish I had talked to them more because I think I would have been much smarter and more learned if I had listened to them. But when you're young, you're full of yourself, you think you don't need to listen to anybody. But life is such that it repeats itself because what I see now at my age, I can see exactly what happened to these people when I was young. The same views that I have, they had also. So it's a wisdom that repeats itself. And if you're young and you are smart, you will listen to older people. Because eventually, when you get to that age, you will realize that what they said was true. For example, this time passes and it doesn't wait for anybody. So do things. You might think that you have all the time in the world, but actually you don't have. I have so many, sadly, so many good friends who pass away young, 50 years old, 60 years old, passed away. And so you never know when your time's up and just make sure that you live a good life. And that was the end of episode 49. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothisismywife.com forward slash 49 alongside a link to subscribe to this podcast weekly newsletter. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting a Malaysian entrepreneur who is passionate about creating Malaysian single origin chocolate. He shares how he first got started in the chocolate making business, the fermentation culture in Malaysia, and the complexities involved in his drive to revitalize Malaysia's ancient cacao culture. To find out more about what it takes to become a professional chocolate maker, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And see you next Sunday.